another episode of the Social Review Podcast. Joining me, Jasper, at JasperCH on Twitter this week, we have... Joe, or Steam Tams on Twitter. Uh, William, uh, William and Air on Twitter. And Eugenie, at MemesTD on Twitter. Last week, uh, New Zealand unveiled its first ever well-being budget. Indeed, it's the first ever well-being budget in anywhere in the world. Uh, the headline figures from the budget are pretty astonishing. Um, there's £980 million investment for mental health, £500 million investment for people suffering mild to moderate anxiety, another £500 million for new frontline mental health workers, £166 million to combat domestic and sexual violence, £520 million for child wellbeing, and another £500 million on the rail network. In her statement accompanying the budget itself, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern stated, Growth alone does not lead to a great country. Funnily enough, we were also asked on Twitter by Robin Wilde, what do we make of Jacinda Ardern's turn away from growth as a focus, and is it something feasible in a much larger economy like ours? So guys, uh, within the context of GDP, which has dominated uh, economic conversation for several decades now, what, what, what do we think about this? If you look at... Um the way in which uh, GDP is presented as sort of a hard science and I, and obviously uh, everything that we, we know about GDP is that it certainly isn't a hard science. In uh, Mazakatu's book, um, The Value of Everything, she talks about how um, uh, the calculation of economic growth uh, through GDP is a, is a social convention um, and, and you see it in the way in which... Um, which, for example, uh, so she has a really great quote about this, actually. She talks about how uh, a resource destroyed by pollution may not be counted as a subtraction from GDP, but when pollution is cleaned up by um, marketed services, GDP increases. So you see the way in which it is chosen which things are included and which things aren't, um, that that GDP is clearly a flawed measure. Why it's actually... uh, why it's continued to be used is a, is a more interesting question. I 100% agree with everything Joe's just said there. It's no secret that I come from a sort of a more MMT-based thing, but it's no secret that, like, to use GDP as a measure is to say, right, this is the full, this is the net transactions within an economy, and if we get that higher, then there will be either more low-level and medium-level transactions or more high-level transactions. It's understandable why in a very, very marketized economy like ours, why we crave GDP, because it's fundamentally increasing those transactions is exactly how we are making society work. But the approach where you take the the fiscal limit, you take the limit of, you know, the budget has a limit of however much you take in tax, that's how much you can also spend. That is a arbitrary uh, artificial limit. Replacing that with there's two of the pro- there's other approaches you can take, and I love I love this way that New Zealand's done this because they've said like the other limit is the human psyche because what New Zealand's have done is they've approached this from a different way in the same way that Kate Raworth does in Donut Economics, which is that your budget has to have a a minimum responsibility has to hit a floor of the human psyche, in the same way that it also has to have a minimum floor of protecting environmental standards. I think part of the answer to why have we uh, stuck with GDP for so long is um, as, as the as the measure, the thing that governments target to, to maximise and we talk about all the time is the measurement of whether a government's been successful or unsuccessful. I think it is um, 
Mark Fisher's concept of capitalist realism and the idea that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Like there is no alternative, and um, that sort of thinking has been um, totally dominant within um, within across the sort of political spectrum um, for so long that the the idea of imagining that governments can do anything beyond maximizing economic activity. Um, I think has really um, that's part of the part of the answer to why why has it been this such this dominant statistic. Certainly, what I found uh, so admirable about this when I was reading through all of it, it was just um, how expansive it was. And as uh, as Joe was just saying, when you think about the um, the way in which capitalism and like a very specific form of capitalism has been so. Um, hegemonic in our understanding in the way we conceptualize you know, the success and failure of relative nations and to say a government as you say would um would emphasize uh kind of human psyche human well-being mental health especially um as a central part of their mission so saying you know it's no longer about achieving milestones in the market but it's about making sure our citizens are are living life as as well as they as well as they can and um it was a it's a level of um enthusiasm and a belief in that government can do something different can embody something different that um i found incredibly admirable and i have to say i'm very very interested to see what happens in new zealand because has anything else like this ever been attempted before have you know i i believe david cameron raised the idea at some point that happiness you know the happiness index might be a new way of of rethinking politics but certainly that was not something that the Tories were ever going to do anytime soon so um yeah I, I look forward to seeing what happens David Cameron said back in 2010 it's time we admitted that there's more to life than money and it's time we focus not just on GDP but on GWB general well-being well-being can't be measured by money or traded in markets it's about the beauty of our surroundings the quality of our culture and above all, the strength of our relationships. Improving our society's sense of well-being is, I believe, the central political challenge of our times. David Cameron failed to address that central political challenge. Um, Talk of well-being kind of faded um, from UK political life. Uh, The Office of National Statistics continues to collect and record well-being in the UK, but it's certainly not um, treated with anywhere near as much seriousness as New Zealand are going about it. Um, so you're right, nobody's ever attempted this before. It's the first kind of budget, um, well-being budget in the world. I think it's absolutely the kind of thing that the UK should be doing. I think all countries should be doing it. I, I, I don't see this as a party political left-right issue. I think it should just be common sense consensus that if you are going to have a government which has a budget and has public spending, then that public spending should be done with the aim of maintaining and improving um the human psyche and people's well-being i i I don't see why um it's taken this long to get to this point at the moment it will always remain a left-right thing because the theory is of course that the market will just sort itself out if people are that unhappy they'll just shop elsewhere and obviously with our knowledge of um ownership obviously we know this isn't how it works but this is actually the really crucial and beautiful thing about this way of doing budgets it recognizes the transactional value of exchange. It says you've got an economy that's based on exchange. You've got an economy that you're measuring in GDP. Okay, fine. But this is causing some other problems. You need to also now judge this economy 
the, how the exchanges um, are also affecting other elements of the economy, including the environment and including mental health. And as soon as you start to notice these things, that's when they're going to get challenged. And that's when people are going to be saying, oh, look, the workers who are having the workers who have more control and more ownership, they have less like they're hitting their mental GDP budget a lot slower than the others are. And the environmental budget is going a lot better where there are better regulations. It's about creating an economic language that allows us to challenge the ownership of these institutions. Because as soon as that happens, we can actually start to articulate why we should be owning them. I think it's interesting when you talk about David Cameron, because I think what's really important about something like um, having a budget which targets well-being as opposed to economic growth is making sure that it's not just a PR line and nothing substantial changes. It needs to be the driving force behind a complete overhaul in the way in which we see the role of government and policymakers. It's about a reorganisation of what um, and how we think the economy should function from from separating economics and individual life um, to realising that there's actually an awful lot of crossover between the two and in fact they're pretty much completely intertwined that you, if you have um so so let's take the uk as an example um david cameron talks about wanting to improve people's well-being but if you impose austerity um measures which do mean people have less money um then they're going to be unhappier because if you don't have the money to spend on you know uh basic things like like rent and bills and food and so forth but also um things like uh clothes that you want and day trips and um you know uh the the kind of things you want to spend money on to be enjoying your life um and you can't do that because the government has limited the amount of money that you have then that is going to make you more unhappy um i th- I, th- I think it's about making that case really loudly and really clearly I think it's worth just bearing in mind that that GDP has pretty much only existed for about 80 years. Um, And you think about how long uh, human civilization has existed. It's like it's a a relatively new idea. And then you look at um, some of the things that uh, Simon Kuznets, the guy who invented GDP, um, said. Um, I think he was... talking in front of uh, Congress at the time, and he said, uh, the welfare of a nation can scarcely be inferred from a measurement of national income. Um, he warned against the inclusion of uh, the military, advertising, and the financial sector in any GDP measures. And he said, distinctions must be kept in mind between quantity and quality of growth. Um, goals for more growth should specify more growth of what and for what. So, um, even the the guy who invented it did not see it as um, as something that should so dominate um, our political um, culture and direction. And I think moving back away from that is um, is such a important break with um, with with the past and with I guess capitalist realism to kind of maybe slightly pull away from the uh, the GDP conversation and to kind of drill down into the policy itself I'm very interested in the in it as a form potentially of um uh quite radical emancipatory politics 
So um, I noted that um, there's going to be an investment of uh, an extra billion dollars into child well well-being. Um, so looking at children living in poverty, um, which uh, I had no idea before reading about this, but I didn't realise that actually that's quite a substantial poverty uh, problem in in New Zealand. Twenty uh, percent of children in New Zealand live in income poverty, which is defined as being without kind of food or health care or warm, dry home, things you know, perceive to be very fundamental in upbringing of children. And um, so the idea that, you know, the, the policy itself can actually be um, part of a kind of transformatory social movement, one which we've kind of talked about vaguely in Europe, I think, with especially about discussions over um, uh, UBI and uh, kind of other policies which are similar to that. And... Um, I I think it, it's it's got the potential to um to potentially you know be be hugely transformative to the lives of uh, thinking especially about women um and their kind of role in the and the, their lives in in the home uh, and as caregivers you know as normally seen as the primary caregivers in, in families and households so um yeah the kind of um the kind of social and economic structures of it you know could that be potentially you know, it could be a huge structural transformation in New Zealand. Joining us this week as our guest on the Social Review podcast is Stephen Lapsley, um, a member of Open Labour's Management Committee, who has been taking part in the elections this week to be re-nominated to that position. Stephen, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. You're very welcome. Hello. As someone who is clearly very involved within open labor um what do you see as the role of open labor going forward and why do you think that open labor has kind of positioned itself as uh the open left rather than the soft left terminology wise um i mean open labor sounds better than soft labor but you know what, <laughs> what, yeah. why, why do you think that is i mean there there, there are a few reasons i guess uh, the to answer your your second question first, um, soft the soft left has sort of connotations, um, and particularly uh, more recently, the Labour Coordinating Committee, which was uh, set up in the eighties uh, and nineties, which was people like Robin Cook. They were the identified soft left, and what they did is they joined in, certainly in the early years, uh, with uh, the Tony Blair government, uh, which I, I think, uh, you know, the, a lot of things that that government did that was were pretty good in the early years, but um, soft left has that connotations a little bit a little bit now, uh, but also um, you know it, it's this this kind of dichotomy between soft and hard which i don't think is is particularly uh the right way to describe things um mm. so we prefer the term open because you know what we're trying to what we're trying to create is um a, a part of the party that isn't obsessed with uh internal uh divisions which which sort of looks outwards towards the voters and just just try to win arguments through debate and through uh, you know listening to all views, but at the same time we we're very much on the left of the party, very much regard ourselves as socialists. Um, 
so you know sometimes the hard the hard left or the so-called hard left can can you know uh, be a little bit like they have very much moral authority about what they're saying what we're saying is right what you're saying is wrong and and sometimes actually uh, people on the, the so-called right or moderate wing of the party can be like that as well um, and so we try to be much more open in our debating uh, and and take views on board that doesn't mean that we uh, we will necessarily shift our, our own views but um, you know it, it is much more of a, a kind of outward facing culture a different culture where uh, people's views are respected that seeds nicely into what I was going to ask next about um the anti-semitism crisis which has engulfed labor over the past couple of years because um you're right there there are problems with the party's internal culture the ehcr the equality and human rights commission last week launched an official investigation into labor um on its handling of anti-semitism cases uh peter willsman was suspended from the nec after yet another anti-semitic rant was leaked uh george galloway was sacked by talk radio for anti-semitism the other day and Oh, this wasn't specifically anti-Semitism, but over the weekend we we read about the David Prescott case and um, the covering up of um, sexual harassment within the, the Labour Party. It's driven away Labour MPs and has made people feel unsafe. Um, so how would you answer the question, how can you stay in the Labour Party given its institutional anti-Semitism? I mean, it's a question I get asked a lot. Mm. Um, you know, I think, first of all... Um, the Labour Party is uh, the only vehicle for, for the kind of changes that I want to see uh, in society. Um, you know, I think if I left the Labour Party, I wouldn't have anywhere else to go. And um, it's also, you know, a party of power. Um, and so it's it's likely, even even you know, in light of of, of recent poll results, to be one of the two parties. Um, that make up the next government, and I would, uh, uh, you know, I want to be involved in that. Uh, I want uh, the Labour Party to have a better culture. There's no doubt about that. Um, I think um, the, the changes that I want to see to society can only be driven from within the Labour Party. Um, and secondly, I think that uh, if uh, people leave because of these uh, internal cultural issues, which you know, there's no doubt they are there. It's no doubt that they are serious, uh, and uh, you know, can be extremely upsetting at times. But if people leave, then uh, you know, we are leaving uh, space and a vacuum for the kind of people who support uh, that kind of culture to to occupy. So, you know, my view is that. Um, you know, all of us who, who are finding that really hard really have to stay in the party and try and fight it from within. Fighting it from without means uh, means uh, that you uh, are essentially um, going to ha have to, by default, support uh, the Conservatives getting back into government. And that would be disastrous for uh, the vast majority of people in this country. You know, there's no doubt that that uh, there is a kind of culture of protecting people who you think are within uh, within your faction, uh, and that's really that's really disturbing. But you know, stay stay and fight is is definitely the message from me. And how do you think people can fight? You know, what kind of practical steps do you think Labour members and Labour supporters can take to um 
rooting out anti-Semitism, changing this dysfunctional culture. Yeah, it's not it's not going to be entirely easy because this is a cultural problem. It's not only within mm. the Labour Party. Um, you know, I I, uh, I have great concerns about people like the Brexit Party, for example, gaining power mm. because I think there there is undoubtedly a culture of, of uh, anti-Semitism as well as uh, you know many other forms of racism within that party. There's no doubt that there's a, a you know a hugely expanded membership, uh, and that the leadership have, has this idea of you know no enemies on the left, and therefore anyone could join the party. Uh, and many people did uh, join the party from some of these hard left organisations that have a culture of anti-Semitism, and they've brought that into the party. Uh, and you know. All my senses are that actually it's getting worse in, in many ways. Uh, it's really disturbing to see people uh, defending uh, the comments made by George Galloway last weekend, for example, uh, which I think were, were utterly reprehensible. Mm. Um, but, but look, you know, it's about creating pressure uh, against people who may not want to act, but, but have to act if the pressure is there. So we've seen the suspension of Chris Williamson, which I think was an absolutely necessary thing. We've seen mm -hmm. the suspension more recently of, of Pete Willsman for comments that were beyond the pale. Um, and we need to keep up that pressure whilst also providing political education to people to, to, to understand what, why, what they're saying uh, is wrong. It's not, uh, you know, what, what you hear back almost all the time at the moment is it's not uh, anti-Semitism is just criticism of Israel. You know, that's not what I see. I'm uh, at times an arch cricket critic of Israel and, you know, generally feel that it's uh, going down completely the wrong course. It's got a, a you know, an, ex uh, an extremely big problem with racism in the culture in Israel. Um, and the current government, uh, led by uh, Netanyahu, is a really, really problematic right-wing nationalist government that allies itself with other right-wing nationalist governments across the world. So, you, you know, you, you can make very pointed criticisms of Israel. You can even, uh, should you want to, uh, you know, question the reasons why uh, Israel came into existence as it, as, it, as it is and not be anti-Semitic. So to move away from anti-Semitism, um, last year you wrote a very good article in uh, on Open Labour um, about housing policy, which um, was about you going to visit your um, grandparents' home. Yeah. Uh, and it ended with this really um, sweet and telling anecdote. I'll, I'll read it out. Um, How's Rita? I asked my great auntie, referring to the elderly lady who had been living next door since time immemorial and used to feed me sweets and let me play tunelessly on her piano when I was a boy. Oh, she died years ago, comes the answer. I don't know who lives there now, but I'm sure they've been stealing my clothes pegs. I think it's clear from that anecdote, your article, and just kind of common sense, um, that a sense of community has been lost in housing policy. Um, and later on in the podcast, we're going to hear about how sports, specifically football, can foster um, that same sense of community. But... um within housing itself how can that sense of community be rekindled you know what kind of role does the state have to play in that can the state play a role in that i think the i i think it's absolutely necessary that the state plays a role um that 
that article that I wrote was was sort of eulogising a little bit about uh, council housing mm. and uh, the the the, um, the uh, Atlee government and how it uh, started the building after the Second World War mm. of of uh, council house uh, estates uh, and um, you know the sense of community that they that they provided those council how those council estates had uh, you know a whole sort of cross section of the working class living on them so uh, you could just as well be living next to a teacher or a doctor on one of, on, on one of those uh, council estates mm. uh, since the great sort of sell off during the Thatcher years those many of those states have been completely broken up uh, there's been a huge rise in landlordism uh, which I do think uh, is is one of the major problems now in society, uh, and buy to let landlords, uh, you know, both small and the sort of large conglomerations that do this, has has really uh, really caused a hugely problematic culture. And um, you know, I was reading an article about Peterborough at the weekend, uh, and. Uh, they were talking about the, these two guys, both incredibly rich, who, who own huge numbers of houses across Peterborough. They took one of them. Uh, they took one of them to, to see one of the houses, and he hadn't been there for years. What this promotes is, is a very transient culture where people are houses are split up into flats often, but people are very short term, very short term tenancies. They don't really care about the street or the community. Uh, that they live in, they don't build friendships and, and communities, and I, you know, I think it's a huge problem. The state, uh, you know, for, for me, this is what the state is for to sort of solve these problems, and we do need a, a you know, to have a very, a really big radical rethink um, about how we are providing housing uh, for people, particularly now, as um, you know, the ownership model is 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 basically proving to be to be a failure. Young people now can't afford to to buy. Housing, and that was always going to be the inevitable, uh, the 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 inevitable uh, outcome of the sort of uh, the the the, uh, the the huge sale of council housing, uh, and um, and everybody buying houses and using the capital of those houses uh, in order to sort of uh, live a, live a grand life. If there's a general theme of this episode of the podcast, it's well-being. Um, so. Very evidently, anti-Semitism does not contribute well-being. If you do have a sense of community and you are friends with the people who you live with and who surround you on your um, estate and your street and so forth, then that is going to contribute to your well-being. Um, it sparks joy. Um, and <laughs> yeah. At the, yeah <laughs> to, to Marie Kondo it. Um, and at the, at the beginning of the podcast, we, we talked about um, New Zealand's new well-being budget. Um so as someone who works in mental health, um, the headline figures from the budget were about mental health. Um, what can the UK be doing to improve the nation's well-being? What can Labour be doing um, in that regard? I, I've worked in mental health uh, for 15 years or so, and uh, things certainly weren't perfect when I started, uh, but they are far less than perfect now. Um, mm. you, um, what we have now is a system that basically concentrates on, uh, you know, the crisis point and crisis management, rather than than um, 
and general well-being. I don't know if you remember David Cameron going on about, about happiness index. I don't know what happened to that. Yes, yes. It was always a ridiculous concept because it had no backing you know, to it. Um, well, we we spoke we spoke about that earlier on about how, <laughs> right, <okay. laughs> his, yeah. his his whole speech about it, which which just kind of fluttered away into nothing. Absolutely, a little bit like the big society, which is is just kind of yes, uh, yeah. you know, there are, there, are, there are sections that have had to be to be done, like you know, communities running libraries, etc. But it was always you know a way of cutting budgets, and that was all it was. The mental health system is in crisis, but actually, the mental health of the nation perhaps the whole world, I don't know, is in crisis, you know, several reasons. One is the breakdown of community. I think you're absolutely right. So, so many people now don't have that sense of community. Um, secondly, is, is the great rise of social media, which, you know, can be very isolative. And, and also, you know, the, the, the online culture isn't particularly uh, great at times. Uh, and, you know, we have to understand that our young people are, are growing up in, in a time that we that we can barely understand. I saw, you know, something the other day that you know, virtually no under twenties have ever read a newspaper. You know, they get everything from the online world, and um, that world can be. And we've seen the stuff with Cambridge Analytica, etc. That world can be really tempered to to what you believe. So that actually, you know, when you're out uh, doing things away from from online, often the world can be completely different to how you think it is. So. I think it's vital that we, we start to recognise this. We start to recognise, you know, the the, the, um, the rise and consistent rise of things like self-harming uh, and um, suicide, sadly, statistics. Uh, it's down to a lot of these things. And, and actually, you know, we, we've, we've lived now for 40 years in this neoliberal world that says that actually uh, something is only worthwhile if you're going to make a profit from it. Uh, and we really have to get away from that kind of thinking. Um, you know, we, we, you know, someone wants to uh, build a library, for example. And I know that's very much and an, uh, not 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 a, a popular thing at the moment. But someone wants to build a library. You you build it because a community needs a library, or you build mm. a, a, a well-being hub because a community needs a well-being hub, not because that well-being hub hub is going to uh, make a profit. You know, that's the kind of thinking I think that we need. How broad do you think well-being? How broad a term do you think well-being should be? What 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 is its remit? You know, but both like uh, in an abstract sense, but also uh, if Labour win the next general election, enshrining that institutionally, um, how like which government departments do you think should be um, dedicated to improving well-being? Um, like where where do you draw the line? Is everything about well-being in I, government? I, you know, I don't see why it shouldn't be. I don't see why uh, all government departments shouldn't have, uh, you know, this notion behind them that what we are is here to serve the population. Mm. Uh, that, in my mind, is what the state is for and what, is government, what government is for. Um, uh, you know, for far too long now, we've lost this idea that government is for the, is, is for the people and for the majority of the people. So I think enshrining well-being in a sense that actually we're, we're here to serve you um, would be uh, would be a really good thing, you know. Mm. Government has become a very transactional, uh, a very transactional way of doing things, um, and you know, whereas you know, you get some pleasure out of doing transactions, and many people, or some people, get a lot of pleasure out of the idea of of making a profit or ripping people off or or whatever that is. The vast majority of people don't 
you know that 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 pleasure will be fairly fleeting um and so you know and the idea of doing government a completely different way was we're there to to uh you know, provide the best possible life uh for all our citizens I, I think should be enshrined across government Stephen, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast um and best of luck in the open labor elections thank you very much uh, it's been a pleasure <laughs> So on Saturday, the Champions League final took place between Liverpool and Spurs, an all-English final. Uh, Jasper has foolishly allowed me to take the hosting chair for this one. I am joined by... Sean, at Sean D. Smith, with a Y, on Twitter. Uh, Eugenie, at MemesTD, on Twitter, as previously heard on this podcast. And Stephen, at Stephen A. Harper, uh, with a PH, on Twitter. So I have an app that tracks your sleep and my sleep debt since the weekend has gone up to about 18 hours. Um, I, yeah, it was incredible. Like I watched the match at home with my family, like a bunch of uncles and cousins, like a proper Scouse Irish Catholic thing. Um, then when we went, we went out into town and we just stood out at the bombed out church for about three hours, belting out Liverpool songs and then went home and then went right back out the next day for the parade and there were people from all over. I ended up in a group where I only knew two people. I met up with a guy from Twitter and my sister came with us. And the guy from Twitter brought one of his mates, who brought one of his mates, who brought one of his mates, and one of those mates brought their wife as well. And we just ended up in a big group walking around the city and people were, you know, hugging each other. I ended up seeing people I went to school with, some cousins who I hadn't seen in years. And just the whole city had come together and then the whole world had come to the city and it you know, you just wouldn't have got that with Man City. You can't, you can't buy what we have. Not to be Leicester fan who always brings up Leicester winning the Premier League, but it was certainly something that um, we really like experienced in uh, Leicester when we won it. I think it does mean something different to um, uh, cities like Liverpool, or obviously it's different circumstances with Leicester. But but there there is a feeling. There is something that is different about a club like Liverpool winning the Champions League or a club like Leicester winning the Premier League, and and I'm not quite sure what that is, but um, but yeah, I I certainly think there is slight something slightly more romantic about Liverpool winning it than say Man City winning it. I I just I definitely agree there. Like if you think about it, Man City's net spend over the period of time since they bought. Since I th- the good a metric used is since the oldest player serving, Man City's. Uh, net spend is one billion and the closest club to that is about 400 million so it's it's just very expected that man city are going to win things because if you look at one season to the last season all that changed in the man city squad was they bought mares they got a substitute for 50 million pounds and not many other clubs sort of have the money to uh to do that i'm a bit of a late in life convert to football um like only in the last few years i've really ever like watched it and certainly like my my most of my team affiliations actually come from god this is the worst thing a woman can say on a podcast when talking about football but it has come from my boyfriend <laughs> but um uh so you know my love for Bayern Munich has uh, not been reaping as many rewards and the German national team as uh, it as it once would have but um I oh god I feel like I'm gonna upset Stephen but I thought it was really boring <laughs> I c- couldn't agree more I was really, really bored. Like, that penalty just killed everything, it felt like. You know, you can argue about the legalities of it all, but even just, like, the momentum of the match, it just felt like I was just 
bored. I've been going on and on about this and my family were getting annoyed at me for saying, but you know that old saying about the way to boil a frog is not to drop it into boiling water because it jumps out, but to put it in cold water and slowly turn up the heat. Exactly. so with with Tottenham, once we got that early goal, we didn't have to do anything. Tottenham wanted us to be coming forward to move into the space that we had. But as soon as we got that early goal, which, you know, as a centre-back in the modern game, I say that like Sunday League counts as the modern game, but you know to put your arms behind your back. And he did not have his arms behind his back, so it was a stonewall penalty, and I'll be taking no further questions on the matter. <laughs> but we, all, we had to do was sit, <laughs> all we had to do was sit back and let Tottenham try and play through us, and they just couldn't. As my partner did comment, who who wants to be referred to on this podcast simply as Mr. Eugenie, like Mrs. Columbo in a Columbo, if any of you <laughs> Columbo fans out there. Um, you know, it was just like, finals are always boring. Finals are never like the best bits. Always the semis or the quarters or whatever. And yeah, like, I feel like we were so spoiled by how good the semifinals were. It was like, nothing was ever going to quite live up to that. And then, yeah, yeah it was you know a bit of a momentum killer and as you say like yeah what was there left to work for like you just had to sock it back in the net a couple more times for security's sake but yeah sad i was supporting tottenham um i didn't have a dog too late to leave the podcast (laughs) (laughs) um but i mean i don't really have a premier league team or a big team um so i kind of thought i'd support the underdog um yeah, I think the final itself was not the most exciting match. Um, I am going to annoy you even more here, Stephen, and say that it was not a penalty. There is no way that was a penalty. Uh, I watched it with my mum, my dad, my brother, and a couple of my mates. And we all said, no, there's no way that's a penalty. Um, but yeah, I think the final, it wasn't the most exciting game. The early penalty really killed it off, in my opinion. Um, but what I will say is, I watched the semi-finals... Uh, in Manchester, where I'm a student, and I watched both legs of the Liverpool game with the same group of people, uh, all except me and one other guy, are massive Liverpool fans, and they were just so ridiculously dejected after that first leg. Um, and then just after the, the second leg, um, it was really weird feeling um, as someone who wasn't a Liverpool fan they were all jumping around screaming uh, making plans to fly to Madrid Um, or even there was talk at one point of trying to get an Uber from the centre of Manchester all the way to Liverpool and then get the first train back at five o'clock in the morning a lot of passion uh, from the fans which is obvious from looking at social media but I, I don't think the final uh, delivered on the hype that the knockouts of the rest of the Champions League um, brought, but also in its defence, I don't really think that any game, even if it had been another um, game like the second leg of the Spurs-Man City game, where both teams scored you know, multiple goals within the first 15 minutes, I don't think it could have lived up to the semi-finals. Yeah, I agree with you there. And also, at the end of the day, football is a competition. It's not a form of entertainment, if you want predetermined entertainment go watch wwe or um you know lucha underground or some of the british independent wrestling things sports is still a competition it may be heavily backed up by who has the most money to spend but i mean like red star belgrade who are my serbian family's team they also won an incredibly boring final knowing they were massively outclassed by marseille so they just played for the penalty shootout 
and, and got there and won the penalty shootout and it was just kind of like for en- any neutral watching it was just oh but then obviously to be the first um, Serbian team to win obviously it's massive and that's the thing in Liverpool you didn't get the fee- no one was going oh it was a boring game everyone was just like and singing songs from the 2005 era especially there's lots of Luis Garcia songs and the Ring of Fire as well as all the new ones like the Ale 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 and once related to the players that are at Diff now and just the entire city was just electric and I think we needed it because you know it's been a long build-up of you know Klopp sort of mentality of buying the right players for the right fit at the right time not panic spending if you don't get someone like after we messed up the Van Dyke thing with a bung we rather than panic by a centre-back we waited until January and we got him and now when you look at him he's arguably one of the best centre-backs in the world we're almost getting to a point where Liverpool one of their players in any position could basically walk into any other team and make it into the first team other teams such as if they also have a world-class goalkeeper Alisson Becker won't necessarily kick them out but if you look at like the form Sadio Mane's been on this season he could probably walk into any team that wanted him right now Um, but I was at the Barcelona match and I if Jurgen Klopp had declared independence or declared like declared himself king and announced to the stadium at the end of it, we're marching down on England because I want to be king of England, I and every other person in that stadium would have joined him. I've never had adrenaline like that before in my life. <laughs> like especially and also I don't know anyone who saw the fourth goal go in, and I think that was one of my favourite parts about live football is when you go home and you actually see what you've missed. Because, you know, I've got a season ticket, so I know all the people who sit around me. So after Trent got the corner, we were all just having a chat about, you know, and we were being really fatalistic, saying, oh, it's 3-0 up, but we're just probably going to lose 3-1. Because going into it, I think that was the mood in the ground, that we'd beat Barcelona, but it probably wouldn't be enough. And then the final whistle blew, and I think, like, one guy nearly fell, just fell down the stadium because he jumped up onto the row in front of him's chairs to start cheering, and a bunch (laughs) was out to keep him up. I just, I'd never... I've seen some great things happen in Anfield. Like, I was there in 2005 when Luis Garcia definitely scored against Chelsea. Um, And... I didn't make it to the Dortmund match but uh, or Istanbul, but you know, seen such great comebacks, but I don't think I've ever seen Liverpool FC do that before. The Liverpool of this season, it's so they're just so likable. Like there's no players where, you know, you think they've got a horrible personality or you're unhappy when you see them starting. It's just this huge well, in Van Dyke's case, definitely huge team. And it's not a one-man team anymore because it used to be, you know, we'd have Owen or we had Gerard or we had Suarez and it was basically our game plan was kick the ball to them and they'll get the 30 or 40 goals that we need. Or, they, you know, they'll create the chances that we need. But now it's just everyone. You're almost stuck in the stands trying to work out who you should sing a song for because everyone's having a blind riff of game. You don't know who you should be honouring at that exact time. I think um, you touched upon it uh in there Stephen actually about the way in which um, football can transcend the sort of actual um, the, the almost the, the sport that's happening on the pitch in the way that you talked about um, the fact that it, did, it didn't matter to any Liverpool fan that the game was boring it's really interesting the way in which football um, interacts with the community surrounding it um, has anyone got any thoughts on that uh, particularly 
Well, definitely in the case of Liverpool, and I'm not going to. I'm not saying this as if other clubs don't do this. It's just the only one I'm aware of. But in the city of Liverpool, there's a big movement of fans supporting food banks. So travelling fans of Liverpool and Everton, whenever they have an away game in another city, they will do a big collection for a food bank and take it to the food banks of those cities. And likewise, at Anfield or Goodison, there will be food bank collections that away fans can donate to and whoever the ho- and the home fans can as well. And you've got people like Andy Robertson, who sort of goes the extra mile. He was recognised at the end of year awards for his role of what he does into the in the community. And then, of course, most footballers nowadays do have their own um, foundation of one sort or another. Um, and I think one matter has tried to start a group and um, this sticks in my head because, you know, it's horrible. It's so stupid, but I hate the idea of people who play for Man United being a good person. But I'm pretty sure one matters tried to start a movement of footballers to donate one percent of their salary. And I know in the grand scheme of things, that isn't a lot of raw value to these people. But the sheer amount of money that even if you just say, um, you know, if you just had a third of footballers in the Premier League signed up to that, the amount of money going into charity would be incredible. And then again, I know that should all just be taxed as it is. But, you know, footballers can't change government policy at the moment. So it's an all right stopgap. Stephen, you were saying about uh, the fans against um, food poverty and doing stuff, food banks. Uh, my my local club, my, my team, Bristol Rovers, um, their community trust does a lot of work that uh, a couple of games last season, they had big uh, food bank collection drives. Uh, the gas heads against, I think they're gas heads against food poverty on Twitter or something. Yeah. Um, so they, they do a lot of stuff, but then also uh, the community trust and the club do a lot of uh, stuff in the community as well, even if it's just the usual, you know, going into primary schools with a couple of players, um, into like a P lesson or something, or going into an assembly. Uh, and then at Christmas, um, a couple of uh, first team players went and helped out at the uh, North Bristol Food Bank as well. And I think a couple of other players I, I've heard, but I'm not sure if this is this is true, um, have just in in their spare time gone to help out and do shifts at the food food bank as well. And I can also say from, oh God, this is going to sound so flippant in response to everyone else's very serious opinions. But, you know, I was on the tube a couple of weeks ago and uh, there was all the Frankfurt, uh, it was like a couple of months ago, actually, all the Frankfurt fans were on the tube also. And they were, um, they were very polite. They uh, they got on the tube and they unpacked their sandwiches. It was really uh, the most German thing I've ever seen in my whole life. And um, yeah, one of them gave me the seat, and it was all very well behaved. Uh, I, yeah, I I'm not particularly apropos on the state of football football hooliganism these days. Obviously, it's still a big problem, but I'm glad to see they're treating uh, the Jubilee line with respect. And as a resident of uh, of the Silver Line and uh, very familiar with the crowds of Wembley, um, I appreciated that very much. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I'd say about the sort of role in the community, and this is obviously very much at the heart, I think if I just turn my head to the back, I can see some uh, literature to do with this. But Liverpool, Everton, for sure, and I think also Chester and Tranmere have all banned the Sun newspaper from their press packets. Um, And obviously the city of Liverpool since Hillsborough has basically had a blanket boycott on the Sun. I do think clubs outside of the Northwest have also uh, put some sun bands on, but that's definitely a thing where club and community are so tightly linked, as well as, you know, the regular memorials held um, at Anfield and the amount of work that Kenny Daglish did with a 
being rewarded with a very long overdue knighthood, but the amount of work Kenny Dalglish and a lot of the players did for the city at such a troubling time. Because I think for a lot of people, because growing up, I absolutely Liverpool FC was my entire life. When I go back to see my parents in in, our, in my childhood room, it's so red. Everything about it is red. All of my memories is all the old pictures of me as me in li- different Liverpool football kits. So when you see these actual figureheads of the community trying to tackle this and make a difference, I do think it's good having... They can be very, very positive role models. And a side of football that maybe um, gets obscured by um, the unsavoury aspects of the game, particularly this season, to do with um, the racism directed at Raheem Sterling. Um, mm. it's, it's, it's worth remembering those those positive aspects of the game even as we struggle to um properly and adequately tackle the problems that 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 still exist within it i don't think it's a problem inherent or a solution inherent in football because football at the end of the day is a human thing and all of those problems are human and societal problems so you're not really gonna there are there are teams that definitely go beyond you know the call of duty like saint pauli in uh germany have prided themselves on always being anti-hooligan pro-lgbt um you know pro-feminist club uh they were i think the first club in germany to specifically ban hard right symbols in germany during the 70s and it basically became a figurehead in germany for people who just wanted to go to football to enjoy a game of football rather than to you know have these hooligans at the match and i know for a fact just through friends that saint pauli have got such a ridiculous international following i've got and they also do so much charity work as well like i knew a few guys and i think it was leeds saint pauli and they had a football um a a football session they ran which refugees who were new to Leeds could come to because at the end of the day, I've played um, a lot of football with people who don't speak the same language as me and it is a language of its own, the actual game. And it's also an amazing form of integration. Like if I've played a game of five-a-side with someone for 10 minutes, the shared um, feeling we'll have by the end of it, you know, I'll be asking them for a drink or if they want to go for some food rather than if we'd sort of spent 10 minutes next to each other sat at a, sh- um, at a show or something. I think it is definitely a really good way to bring people together. Um, but obviously I say that as someone who adores playing football, so I'm slightly biased. So Paul is certainly very, um, certainly in like left football Twitter, if if that is a thing. It may just be me and you, Stephen, um, of a kind of sort maybe not not followed per se but like looked upon kindly um i mean when i went to hamburg on holiday for a couple of days last year i uh, made sure to go and look round not look round the stadium but you know go and see the stadium make sure i got a photo at the stadium uh and i've, I've uh, managed st pauli on football manager for example uh because my my football playing skills are somewhat limited so i have to uh, <laughs> Uh, the only place I feel like I can really contribute to the sport of football is um, on Football Manager. But, Big um, mood. Yeah, it's, it's a great game. I've spent far too long playing it. Um, but but also, um, something I remembered is at the National Football Museum in 
Manchester. Uh, I went there with uh, some mates on the day of the... I think it was Manchester United playing Valencia in the Champions League back in uh, November. Uh, and they had, the museum had kind of really gone to the effort of they knew that there would be potentially a lot more uh, Spanish people, or people who didn't speak English as their first language, uh, going there because of the game. So I, it was very much for one day only. They had, uh, they like taped up a load of extra uh, Spanish translations of what all the captions on the exhibit said. And I thought that was just a, a really nice touch. I think for me, like um, as a Leicester fan, when we when we qualified for the Champions League, there was something. I mean, it's a very different context, I guess, for us because we just never imagined we would ever be in that position. Like, never imagined that we would be there. But but to see your football club walking onto the pitch and with uh, on a European night and with um, the Champions League anthem playing out and like as someone who has supported Leicester since well like all my life and remembering the days of Ian Holloway managing us as we got relegated to the into League One for the first time in our history and um and the days when we, our big signings were people like Barry Hales and um uh and whoever from some mid-tier Scottish Premier League team um, Don't knock players from mid-tier Scottish Premier League teams. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, Ian, Ian Holloway and Barry Hales, both Bristol Rovers legends, I'll have you know. <laughs> well, they were terrible for us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but but to, but to go from that sort of position and seeing your team like that and then to see them walking out to play uh, Sevilla in a Champions League match... Um, that was like such a special and like I, I was just speaking to like every Leicester fan like that I that I know it was like quite an emotional like experience too it was like it, and it and it's amazing like the power that that had over like everybody that I knew there's just something magical about a European night especially I think the different kind of thing rather than it being the first for um, me going to my first European match it was not like all I'd heard all the stories from my dad about the four times we'd already won it. I distantly remember the um, Mickey Mouse treble we got. And I think my first match was against Marseille. And there was, you know, you were hearing all these voices you weren't used to. You was playing a club that we didn't get to play um, twice a season. And like, I remember my dad just being like, or the sense of belonging my dad felt that Liverpool had at Europe's top table um you, you kind of felt you were walking into so much history and there are songs we sing that you know when i was singing them for the first time like fields of anfield road or something that's actually got a much bigger past in history and it's something that you're kind of like taking up and hopefully you know people um when i'm older and there's the next generation of kids coming to the game. They're going to be singing our songs thinking, God, do you remember 2019 when we finally won the Champions League final after 14 years? And, you know, Virgil van Dijk will be managing Liverpool and everyone will be happy. I'll have a cat. <laughs> but it's just, this, yeah, it's 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 hard to, it's I think it's very hard to explain to people who don't get it. Because my, my mate at work is just absolutely not a football fan. And he gets really annoyed at, 
me and my manager talking because my manager will say, you guys did really well on the weekend. And then I'll reply with like, oh yeah, we got a really good result at whatever. And he'll get mad because for him, he's like, well, you weren't one of the 11 players on the pitch. You weren't the manager. Why are you saying we? But it is, it's that's just part. I'm sure you, you you say the same about your own clubs. It's it's definitely we. It's You feel a massive part of it, especially if I've actually been to the stadium. And I know it's stupid because I've just sat there and I've eaten a pie and shouted at people. But it's that almost like that shared experience that every Liverpool player and every Liverpool fan, we all experienced that game at the same time, no matter where we'd come from or where we were going to afterwards. For those 90 minutes, we were all at Anfield or watching it on TV. And the only we all shared that common thought of, oh my God, I want to win this match. I don't come from a family who are interested in football and I'm, I was never really interested until a few years ago and I think for a lot of people who might be like me uh, or they had like the experience of last summer with the World Cup and just like how fun that was um, and how it can actually be something that's like joyous and does bring people together uh, you know people were smiling at each other in the street unheard of yeah it's a kind of community building exercise and um, it's just really great that you know we can have we can have these groups and um, yeah, really bring people together in, in yeah, kind of joyous celebration, especially with the lo- the local angle as well with what you're all saying. I had no idea basically that football clubs did anything like that, and it's uh, it's really heartening to hear. Once again, you have been sending us in your questions via Twitter. Thank you very much for those, and we are here to provide some answers. Well, I say we; it's just me, Joe, and Eugenie as uh, William has gone off to eat his jack potato for dinner. Richard Bradley asks, are Chuck Tinge serious politicians or a committed group of performance artists? Chuck Tinge, for those of you who don't know, will be Change UK slash the independent group, which today lost six of its MPs um, who are now just plain old independents, uh, leaving Anna Subri, uh, Chris Leslie, Mike Gapes, Joan Ryan, and somebody else um in change uk which and coffee now in... no and coffee yes yeah 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 never mind, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's always sad to see uh you know luciana burgers like increasing you know the way she's been pushed out well feels like she's been pushed out of the labor party um and her you know the way this has all fallen apart as well and you just uh, speaking just on a personal level here i really like her and wish her all the best and um you know she deserves better than all the nonsense parties she's been uh she's been dragged well not dragged into but um you know the kind of events which had taken us to this point you know, we can sit and laugh about like truly how abominable uh cook or chuck or i don't even know what i'm meant to be calling it but um have been but oh it's always in the back of my head just like the um the kind of the the horrible the horrible situation that kind of took us up to this point. Sorry to sorry to um, put a bit of a pin in the balloon there, but uh, that's me, your resident. I don't know, fun sponge. Can the left use the issue of homophobia against the Brexit Party, and if so, how can it do so in a way that is sensitive to LGBT people? Asked by Lawrence McKay. I think you have to be very careful. So I know this. Uh, I know the person on uh, Twitter, Lawrence, said that he was kind of uh, brought on it by the whole debacle about the uh, the billboard uh, by uh, led by donkeys. I think is the name of the group. You know, yep. they put up 
they were, they're the ones who do the uh, screenshots of the mock-ups of the tweets and just put those up and it'll be like Boris Johnson saying no deal's never been on the table or I'm just spitballing but yeah we've all seen the stuff online um, and they put up was it an Anne Widdicombe tweet or was it someone else I don't but there was there was some kind of this was like a couple of weeks ago maybe there was some kind of billboard they'd put up and it was um, some Brexit party person kind of some very uh, bland, run-of-the-mill homophobic remark. Um, and the kind of idea was to be like, oh, look at this person, ha, 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 ha. But, you know, uh, look at these awful antiquated opinions, obviously not really thinking about the fact that what they basically done is put up a huge billboard with a big old homophobic quote on it. Um, maybe not the most woke thing you could possibly do in election campaigning. Um, and... Certainly the, um, you know, the the kind of way and the way in which uh, a lot of the kind of talking about this has been has been like, oh, um, you know, isn't it weird how she has all these antiquated opinions or no one could ever agree with her and anything like that. And usually comes from straight people. And um, I have to say, it's not a reflection of most members of the LGBT community's kind of lived experience with homophobia, transphobia, you know, all the phobias out there. Um so yeah, I'm I'm very reticent to. I think, you know, certainly that was just a complete misfire. And you know, in defence of led by donkeys, uh, I think as soon as they got quite viciously dragged on a, on Twitter, they realised the mistake they'd made. They uh, they deleted the tweet and they pulled the billboard as well. So you know, kudos to them. But um, yeah, I I think, I, I think the the personally my my opinion on this is um yeah. We've got to um, uh, call call out call out the bigotry when we see it, um, but I'm I'm hesitant about you know kind of raising amplifying the opinions. You know, I wouldn't want to be making it the centerpiece of any campaign. You know, it's got to be part of like a multifaceted. It's got to be part of a multifaceted critique. You know, look at this look at this party. Look at what they represent. But certainly, just kind of blaring it out. I don't know. Maybe that just comes from uh, my personal experience on that and the back sorry it's kind of like the Esther McVeigh thing right uh, we were all going kind of saying oh how awful it was that she was saying about the Birmingham schools and how the parents should be able to pull their, their children out of the LGBT lessons and having a go for that but ultimately I think probably in the Conservative Party membership electorate that's probably a vote winner so as bleak as it might be um you've got to find the right balance. Um, and I think part of that will also be about full-fronting LGBT um, MPs and activists in, in the kind of fight back against this bigotry. And thus, episode two comes to an end. Thank you very much to all my co-hosts, Joe, Stephen, Eugenie, William, Sean, as well as Steve Lapsley for coming on as our guest. The music you heard was Sweeter Vermouth, composed by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. If you enjoyed this episode, then please like, subscribe, share, all those things. Check out the Social Review website. And uh, yeah, you'll hear us next week. Goodbye. (laughs) 